The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I want to first uh, say thank you to all the guys who came out yesterday and helped us over at the Columbus. Uh, we were running cabling for all of our speakers and microphones, and uh, it was a full day's work. I got there a little before 7 and opened up the building, and I closed up the building a little after 5. We probably had, at, at max, probably about 20 guys out all at one time. And uh, if you're wondering why we wanted to do it that way, we put the tanks to do it. We asked the, our consultant who's helping us how much money we save by doing this ourselves. And he said, on the low end, we save 4000 On the high end, we save $8,000 just by showing up yesterday with all those guys and doing that work. So big thank you to all of you who came out yesterday to help. Really appreciate that. We're here in Genesis 7 now. We're continuing our track across what is commonly known as the story of Noah's Ark or the story of Noah's flood and an attempt build a theology of God from this section of text that we're in right now, and if you want to find out why we're approaching it in this manner, I simply encourage you to visit our website, cbcvirginia.com. You can listen to some of our previous messages in the series so you can understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and uh, just to keep you all up to speed, so far we've seen how many attributes of God here in Genesis uh, 6 through 9, you remember? Two, look at that, I gave you a clue. We've seen God's holiness, we've seen God's provision. Today we're going to see God's power. Let's read the text and you will see why I say that's what we're going to see this morning. Look at verse 1. Moses writes, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. In seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was breath was in whose nostrils was breath breath life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. He was blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. Lord, we are continuing to work through this story, continuing to try to understand you here in this horrific tale of judgment. It's easy for us to trivialize this and just relegate it to the realm of myth, to, to come at this as just a bedtime story from which we can learn a few good morals, perhaps, but nothing more. Lord, we recognize that your word is true, that you are true, and that you don't do things lightly, nor do you tell us things lightly. When you have acted, and when you have chosen to record those actions, it is for our benefit. It is so that we can learn about you, about who you are, about your character, your plan, so that we can worship you and live with you for all eternity. It's true of the whole Bible, and it is true of the story. But we have tried, as well as we can, to come is that heart, one that wants to see you and know you and learn about you here in this text. And I pray, Father, that that has been used by your Spirit to help us grow in our knowledge and, and love of you. And Lord, today we're coming into the, the heart of blackness, the worst moment of this story, when you unleashed the flood upon the earth and everything except for those on the ark. Pray, Father, that as we come to the text today, that you will help us differentiate what is important and what is not. In our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that your spirit will confront us with where our hope truly lies. Because every person in this room this morning, depending on a savior of some sort. We want to make sure it's the right one. So, Father, we open our eyes to the text. We help us to see your great power on display here in this story. We remind us, ultimately, that every ounce of hope and trust we have in this life rests on you alone. So, Father, as we come now, we ask your blessing on our time in your word. I want you to think back with me moments here over some disasters that have occurred in recent history. I want to take you back first to March 11, 2011. See if anyone remembers what happened on that day. Do you remember what happened back in March of 2011, so a little over a year ago? Japanese tsunami, very good. Uh, I have a confession to make, Frank, as the room, as you guys are sitting. I stopped working for a little bit that day and went and sat out in the living room to watch the news coverage of that, so you can dock that off my paycheck this month, okay? make up for it. But I remember just sitting there watching the video of the tsunami rushing in and just being overwhelmed. It, it's almost fascinating and terrifying all at the same time seeing those waves washing 
buildings and cars and everything else away that was, that was out there. And within 24 hours of that event, the, the world was flooded, no pun intended, the world was flooded with news stories and reports of all kinds of things in relation to the tsunami. Now back up nine years and six months from that date and what happened on September 11, 2001 with terrorist attacks. And I'm sure that all of us remember exactly where we were and what we were doing. I was at work and I remember uh, we ended up actually getting out of work a little bit early, but as I was driving around trying to get back to the, the warehouse where I worked, uh, I flipped into the radio stations and every single radio station that I remember had tuned into coverage from one of the major networks of what was going on. I mean, the news was all that was on. I remember that uh, at some point in that early afternoon period, they announced that the Virginia pilot was going to give special afternoon edition of the paper giving everything that was known up to that moment on the on the events, and that was only about like six or seven hours after stuff had happened. I went to the 7-Eleven on the corner of Battlefield and Great Bridge and bought a copy of that paper. I still have it to this day. It was about 12 or 14 pages long and only seven hours, and of course we know all the news coverage that occurred in the days, months, and years since then. We, we could go back to earlier events like the eruption of Mount St. Helens or the assassination attempt of President Reagan, the assassination of President Kennedy, the attack on Pearl Harbor. You fill in the blank, any kind of disaster or event like that you can think of, and I'm pretty sure that every single one of those events, every single one of those disasters were covered in depth by the news media and the eyewitnesses of the time. We're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stories and covering millions upon millions and millions of words. All of these events, regardless of their origin, their circumstances, how severe they were, have at least that one thing in common. Now, take all of your understanding of how all of those disasters are covered and think about what we just read here in Genesis chapter 7. If I count every single English word in my Bible, I'm using the ESV, I get a grand total of 543 words to describe the single greatest catastrophe the world has ever seen. Of course, we know that Moses wasn't from Arkansas, so he wasn't writing in English, he's writing in Hebrew, and in Hebrew it's even less words, in Hebrew it's like uh, 363 Hebrew words, it's even less. So I want to help Moses out here a little bit, we're going we're gonna to do the English count, but the number is bigger, so it makes it sound a little better. 543 words, but, but mind you, that's only if I count every single word in the chapter. If I only count the words that have to do with the flood itself, and not with Noah and his family and all the animals getting onto the ark, but I just count the words about the flood itself, it drops down to less than 250 words to describe the single greatest catastrophe the world has ever seen. Now, does it in any way, shape, or form seem strange to you that when Moses has the opportunity to write down the very first true account of the flood, that he only gives less than 250 English words, I didn't do a count in Hebrew for this, but 250 English words of that event? I mean, if it was me and I was writing about it, I was the first one, I'm going to record it for you, I'd want to write about, about how people were affected who were outside the flood, not just that they drowned, but what did they think? What did, 
Could they hear the screams coming from, from outside? Could they see animals scurrying away trying to escape the waters? I want to hear how Noah felt inside the ark, what the animals did when they were reacting. I want to hear what it sounded like as the rain was pouring down and the waters are rushing up around the boat and they start to float for that first time. I want to include as many details as I could. So to not include all those things, which of course is what Moses has done, he's left it all out, seems really, really strange, right? Well, yes, if you think that the purpose of this story is to tell us something about the flood itself. See, if the purpose of the story is to explain the flood, then what Moses has done makes absolutely no sense at all. He's given very, very few details. You have very little information about the story. He just basically says, hey, look, it happens. Here's a few details here and there. But after that, kind of leave it to your imagination, do whatever you want. If his purpose is to highlight the flood, this makes absolutely no sense. But of course, we know what? That's not the purpose of the story. That his purpose is not to draw our attention to the flood, but that his purpose is to teach us something about God, about his character, and about his plan. He wants us to know who this God is. And so all of the details about the flood are really just, uh, they're just like a, a minor emphasis in the story. That's it. Well, if there's a minor emphasis, guess what? There's a, a major emphasis as well. And so as we look at this chapter this morning, what I want to do is to look at the power of God, which is on full display here in chapter 7, along these two lines, along a, a minor emphasis first, and then along a major emphasis second. Because as we see what God is doing here in this chapter, it's going to open our eyes not simply to him and his power, but to where our trust in all of life really truly lies. And so let's look here at chapter 7 this morning. Let's look at these two emphases here on this, this in the story to understand who our God is. And so let's start with the minor emphasis of the story, which is God's power over creation. Again, if you think the purpose of the story is to teach you about the flood, then this won't make any sense to you, but I'm telling you, it is not the purpose of the story. This is the minor emphasis, and so we're going we're gonna to start here. And as we look through chapter 7, you can see God's power over creation in three distinct ways. First, you see his power and his authority over man. And remember, this is a story, right? Okay, it's not a, it's not a letter, it's not a poem, it's a story. And in a story, when you have a character who's speaking, that's important. That shows you where emphasis is being placed. And in this portion of the story, there's only one character who's speaking, it's God. Look at verse 1. It says, Then God said... He's the one who's going to be speaking. He speaks to Noah, and he gives him some commands. And what are those commands? First one he gives him is to go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. First command here, go into the ark. And just for interest's sake, I want to draw your attention to a couple of the things he says here, and a couple of things we talked about a few weeks ago. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, we talked about the word, what the word righteous means in the Old Testament? That it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that you are perfectly holy or that you match up to, to God's standard of, of righteousness. No, the word righteous in the Old Testament is referring to practical righteousness, to obedience. Remember, Noah is a man who walks with God. And because he's a man who walks with God, he lives his life in everyday 
fellowship with and obedience to God? Does he fail? Yes, he does. But compared to those around him, those in this generation, he's a righteous man, so God draws our attention to him. Uh, and so that's what tells him to go into the ark. Second, he's supposed to take seven pairs of all the clean animals, a pair of all the other animals, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens into the ark with him. Now, let's just stop here for a moment because this is confusing. Right? Pause for a second. This is confusing to a lot of us because we just don't think about the animal world in this way of clean versus unclean animals, at least not officially or universally. You might privately think about them in that manner, but we don't have any major system for doing it. I uh, went to lunch on Thursday with a group of pastors here in the area. We were out in Chesapeake, and one of the pastors from out in Chesapeake wanted us to go to lunch at this barbecue place. I don't even know what the name of it was. It's tucked back in the middle of nowhere. I would have never found it in a million years. We go into this barbecue place, and it has all the normal barbecue place items, pulled pork, and brisket, and jerk chicken, things like that. Then on the menu, one little box, out the pot, O-U-T-D-E-P-O-T, that's the out the pot section. And in the out the pot section, you could get oxtail. This is why we went there, because he wanted to get him some oxtail to have for lunch. Now, when it comes to clean versus unclean animals, privately, I have three clean animals. Cows, chickens, and pigs, nothing else. And even amongst those three animals, only certain parts of those animals are clean for me. So Jamie and I were recently looking at this um, uh, website for this farm out in Western Virginia. They sell meat. It's like uh, free-range, grass-fed, something. I don't know. It's all this stuff. They have packages you can buy. And in the beef package, it's got steak, it's got ground beef, it's got roast, it's got all the stuff you would expect and want. And at the bottom of the list, it's got in one heart and one tongue. Yeah, see, that's what I'm talking about, that only certain parts of the animal are clean and therefore acceptable to me and my family, other parts are not. Unfortunately, for Israel, they didn't have all of the available options for food that we did. God had given them an official universal list of what was clean versus an unclean animal. That's just weird to us, because we don't, we don't think that way. So for us, the distinction itself is confusing. But what's even more confusing still is trying to figure out which animals Noah thought of as being clean versus unclean. And you say, what, what does it even matter? What, what's the big deal here? Where Here's the big deal. If Noah is using the same list that Israel used, then he's got a lot of animals that he had to bring seven pairs of into the ark. A lot. And, and that's going to be kind of tight in such a, such a small boat. But here's the deal. I don't think that's how it was working at all. Let me quickly explain. I think it's easier for you to see it than to uh, just hear it. This is how Israel understood its classification of animals. Okay? You've got all the animals. Within that group, God has specified a certain group of them as being clean, edible animals. And then within that group, some of those clean, edible animals could also be sacrificed to God in worship. So for them, the distinction between clean and unclean is both for diet and for worship. Not so, well, here, let me just make sure you understand. Here's an illustration. My dog, Dixie, my sweet, loving, three-year-old black lab, according to the law, is an unclean animal. According to Jamie, she's unclean as well. 
right? <laughs> Damien, the law of all things clean and unclean in our house. Dixie is an unclean animal. You can't eat her. You can't uh, sacrifice her to God. However, if you have a moose or a reindeer or a bass, those are clean animals according to the law. You can eat them. Nice moose steak, a grilled bass, but you can't sacrifice them to God. If you have a lamb or a bull or a turtle dove, something like that. Those are clean. You can eat them, and you can sacrifice them to God. You understand the distinctions here, okay? This is Israel's system. Does that make sense? I don't think this is Noah's system. Here's why. At the time we're reading about Noah going to the ark, Noah hasn't yet been given permission to, to eat animals. At this point, his system probably looks something a little more like this. It's not going to be until after the flood that, that God comes in and says, okay, now all the animals are yours to eat. When you get to chapter 9, guess what? It's all the animals are okay to eat. There's no clean, unclean animals for eating. It's simply eat anything you want. Anything that moves, it's yours. Take it, go. I have a feeling, I, a suspicion, that here in the text as we're reading this, this account that he's supposed to bring these specific animals in in greater quantities. We're only talking about a limited number of animals that were used for sacrifice. You say, well, how do you know that, that he would use those things for sacrifice? Well, you go all the way back to Abel, what do you see? Sacrifice. Right off the bat, Abel brings the firstborn of his flock to God in an offering. And so how Abel knew to do that, which animals they knew to bring, I just have to assume God told them. But whatever the case is, I think that we're not talking about a very large group of animals here. And so by simply recognizing that God has the authority to command Noah to do whatever he wants him to do, we get the first glimpse into God's power over creation. Second, we see it in his control of nature. Power is seen in his control of nature. And this one's easy, right? Because what are we talking about? The flood. The flood is a really obvious area to see God's power over nature. And all I really want to do with this is to draw your attention to the catastrophic language that Moses uses throughout his telling of the flood story. Uh, look at verses 11 and 12 first. He writes, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens are open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And what are the questions that immediately jump into your mind? What's it mean when the Fountains of the great deep burst forth. I don't know. Nobody else does either. Maybe if they want to tell you that they do. But what does it mean that the, that the windows of the heavens were open? Is that a water canopy that fell? I, I don't know. The text doesn't answer that question for us. So whatever it means, though, it sounds scary. <laughs> it sounds bad. The one part of this that I do understand very clearly is when it says that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine if, if this hurricane, Isaac, is getting ready to go into the Gulf of Florida, what if it came right up to the, the shoreline of Virginia Beach and stalled? And for 40 days and 40 nights, we had torrential rain, tree of the wind, torrential rain over our area. I don't know where your house sits. My house would flood. My house would be gone. Just that alone is beyond belief. Not to mention all of these other details here. This is mind-boggling. Look down at verse 17. There he writes, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. deep. Again, to stop, how long is a cubit? 18 inches, about the length of a man's forearm. That means that he's saying here that the water rose so high that it covered the mountains by about 22 feet. Now, I'll make two comments about that. First, this is one of the reasons why I do believe that the flood, the scope of the flood is global. Not just local, not just regional, it's global. Because I can't quite envision a scenario where there is water 22 feet above a mountain that only stays in a local area. It's like a water drop on the earth, basically. I, I, I don't quite understand how that works, because that's not what water would normally do. However, the second thing I would say is, you understand there's not that much water on the earth today to cover all the mountains today by 22 feet of water. There's not. If, if you level the whole earth out, so I read, if you level the whole earth out perfectly flat, raise up all the valleys, lower all the mountains, perfectly flat round earth, the oceans would cover the earth by about 12,000 feet of water. That sounds like a lot. That's not how the earth is, right? Mountains and valleys and oceans and all these other things. So how do we reconcile what Moses is telling us with what we see around us? Well, I can't fully answer that question for you either, but I can say this. Remember what we talked about in our introduction. Remember the three weeks of introduction. I said that in all of these things that we ask, in all these questions, in all these theories, we have to remember that we don't know what baseline we're starting from in these conversations. We don't know what the world looked like before the flood. We can assume that it's this or that, but we don't know for a fact. If this is as cataclysmic as what he's describing, it is possible that the world we see today is absolutely nothing like the world before. Absolutely nothing. Like, that sounds crazy. Maybe it is. I'm just simply pointing out that without knowing the baseline, I can't pass a judgment one way or the other. What I can say for certain is that whatever the right answer is to the scope of the flood, I know what I think it is, but whatever the right answer actually is, Moses is clear on this particular detail, that no people or animal or birds flew up or climbed up to the top of the mountain and escaped. None of them went somewhere else where the flood wasn't and were able to survive as a result, because it says here in the very next verse that all flesh died. All of it. Regardless of what you think of the scope of the flood, the consequences are not in question. All flesh died that moved on the earth. All the birds died. All the livestock died. All the beasts died. All the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth died. And all mankind died. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Those were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is why I'm saying that this is unlike anything we've ever seen or been able to imagine in our life. There's been no other event that has destroyed all life like this one. And so you can see in this terrifying scene God's control over nature. Third, you see it in his exercise of judgment. His power in his exercise of judgment. 
And this is admittedly almost the same as the last one, but I want to point out one little nuance. Something Moses does here in the text that stands out to me. In verse 23, Moses clarifies who it is that is at work here. He says that it's God. He blotted them out. It's not simply that the flood killed them. God killed them. Let that sink in in an awkward silence. He killed them. The flood was his means, but it's God who's doing it. It's like if you walk up to someone with a gun and put it to their head and pull the trigger, what killed them? The gun or you? You did it. The gun was the means you used, but you're the one who goes to jail. In this case, as God is passing judgment on the earth, he wants, Moses takes the, the effort to point out to us, it's not simply that it just happened. It's not just a natural disaster in that sense. It's a very unnatural disaster. It's a divine disaster. As God is bringing judgment on mankind for their sinfulness, and in doing so, we see the frightening power of God in judgment on sinners to do whatever he wants to do with them. So, as you can see from these three things here, the power of God is on full display. And yet, what did I say to you in the beginning? It's the power of God over creation that is the minor emphasis. It's not the main point. Despite all of these things, despite all of this description, it's it's not the main point. You see, the main point, you have to look at the major emphasis of this passage, and the major emphasis of this passage is God's power to save. You see, I, there's something here in chapter 7 that didn't make sense to me for the longest time as I was working through the text. Maybe you noticed it when I read through it this morning just a few minutes ago, or maybe you've noticed it in the past as you've read through this on your own, but just in case you haven't, let me show it to you. Pay attention to what I'm about to put up on the screen here. We're going to read through four sections of the text. And I want you to look for similarities in these four sections. All here in chapter 7. Let's start in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Okay, so what do you have there? You have God's command to Noah, to others, the animals, hey, get on the ark, and just look down at verse 5, this is still part of this first one. What do you see? Noah obey God. Okay, that's the first one. Get on the ark, all the animals, get on the ark, here are the details, get on the ark, they obey. Now, look at verse 7. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. What do we have here? Same thing. This I'm actually getting on, okay? But a lot of the details are the same, two and two, male and female, clean, unclean, go get on the ark. And what do they do at the end? They did as God had commanded Noah. Great, look at verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind. 
Every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. What do you have here? Same thing. All get on the ark. Noah, family, animals, two and two, male and female, clean, unclean. They get in, as God had commanded him. You do get one extra detail here. That's right at the end that the Lord shut them in. And now look at the final comment back in verse 23. We didn't focus on it before. We're going to do it now. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Except only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. What do you have here? A reminder that everyone and everything who got on the ark lived in the midst of this horrible judgment. Now, why would Moses repeat this one idea four times in such a small section? Maybe he's forgetful. He wrote it once, he forgot, he wrote it again, he forgot, he wrote it a third time, and then it got in, he's like, I should just make it clear one more time. Maybe he's, he's just an old, forgetful man. Um, no, no. Let, let's, let's just quickly review what we know, okay? We know that Moses doesn't waste his words, right? We talked about that way, way a long time ago, last year sometime, as we were looking through the introduction to Genesis. He doesn't waste his words. He doesn't have unlimited paper. <laughs> he writes something. He writes it down because it's important. Also, I know, because we've seen it in the past, that if Moses repeats something, it's because it's important. And here, since he repeated the same concept four times in four different ways, it must be really, really important. In fact, I have to assume that it's the main emphasis of what this section of the story is all about. That he's trying to draw our attention to the fact that God is directing Noah to do this, to get into this ark because the flood is coming, that the flood comes, but they're in the ark, the Lord shuts him in, that ultimately, even in the midst of all the judgment, when everyone else has died, Noah and all those inside remain. I think that what Moses is trying to emphasize to us is God's power to save. Let me ask you a question here. What saved Noah? Was it the ark? Is it this boat that protects him from the single greatest catastrophe in the history of the world? Is it this little wooden barge that he's floating around in that protects him from divine judgment? Is it like gopher wood? Is God's kryptonite? Like, oh, he's in the gopher wood box. I can't get him yet. I'm going to wait till he comes out and then, then he's going down. Think about this. Is it that the seas can't penetrate pitch? Is it that there's no possible way that this amazing event hurt the people inside this little wooden box? No. Not the ark saved Noah here. God. God saved Noah here. And you just think back through this incredible story, even just up to where we're at right now, who commanded Noah to build the ark? God. Who gave him the instructions for how to do it? God. Who told him 
when it was time to go in to the very day when he needed to enter. It's God. Who allowed him to bring his family? God. Who brought the animals to him? God. Who shuts him in? God. Who spared his life and the lives of those with him in the midst of this disaster? It's God. And who showed grace to Noah in the midst of judgment? It's God. What we have emphasized for us here is God's power to save in the midst of anything. Anything at all. And so was it a boat that saved Noah? Is that where his safety was found, where his security was found, where his salvation was found, as in this little wooden uh, Lincoln lock set on steroids? Is that what he finds his safety in? No. It's not that at all. His safety and security and salvation are found in God. And if you don't see the practical implications of this for us, then you still don't yet understand what Moses is trying to emphasize. Let me let me try to make it clear for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring it into our lives now. Same concept that we see here with Noah. But where do we, as believers, find our safety, our security, our salvation in life? I'm not talking about for eternity. I'm talking about for now. Where do we find our safety, our security, our salvation now? Do you find it in money or possessions? Here's how you can tell if you do. If you're tempted to think that everything in your life would just be great if only you made a little bit more money, or if the house was paid off, or if retirement was funded, or the kids college was paid for. If you're tempted to, to worry because you don't have enough stash away for retirement, like, oh, it's just going to be horrible, i got only so much time left. If you're prone to find happiness and joy and things you can touch and own and possess, then you don't understand that those things can never provide the safety and security and salvation that you ultimately desire. Because no matter how much you have, no matter how well you handle it, it can all be taken from you in a moment. A financial crisis could come, and all your savings is gone. Your retirement is completely gone. War could break out, and then it doesn't matter that your house is paid off, but the guy with the gun is stronger than you, your house is going to help out. Famine can hit, and you can't eat gold. There's lots of things in this world that can take away all the security that we like to find in our money and our possessions. None of those things ultimately can provide the safety and security that we say we desire so much, and yet we put our trust in them. Maybe that's not you. Maybe your security, your safety, your salvation is found in family and friends and other people. Here's how you can tell. If you feel incomplete when you're all alone, if you think that your life would be over if you never, uh, if you were ever to lose your, your spouse or your children or if you never get a spouse or a child, if you're tempted to find your, your self-value, your worth as an individual in the opinions of other people, then you don't understand those things never will be able to provide the safety, the security, and the salvation that say we desire. Because no matter how tightly you hold on to the people around you, you, you can't protect us well. Going your way home, get in a car accident, you lose your spouse, you lose your child, what do you do? Friends, where is your trust? You, you long for the, the friendship of others and it's not there. What do you do? Where is your trust? 
There's no safety, no security, no salvation in those things. Maybe for you it's health and fitness is where you find your safety, security, salvation. Here's how you tell. If you're, if you're tempted to focus your life on exercise and physical achievement, if you somehow think that it's up to you to keep yourself healthy through anything and everything that comes up in life, if you're prone to worry about all these things to the point that it consumes you, then you don't understand that there is no safety, no security in any of those things. Because you can be the most fit person in the world and a heart attack will cure. Disease doesn't follow you to the grocery store and look at your list to see whether or not it's going to affect you. Understand, none of these things can save. There's no security, no safety in any of these things. And I could keep going, but here's my point. It's not wrong for us to plan for the future financially, is it? It's not wrong to do everything we can to protect the ones we love. It's not wrong to exercise and try our best to be healthy. The problem isn't in the doing of those things. The problem comes in trusting. It's at that moment that those things have become idols, little saviors, in whom our trust. Noah was right and wise to build the ark as God had commanded him. The ark didn't save him. The ark is nothing if God's not in it. The ark is nothing if God's power doesn't uphold him and protect him and save him in the midst of this. And the same is true for us today. Look, believers, I'm talking to you. We say that we have placed our hope and trust in the gospel, in, in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. We say that this is the only hope we have for being made right with God and spending eternity with him, is the blood of Jesus shed for us, and we're right. That is the only hope we have. He is the only Savior who can save us from sin. And yet for far too many of us, when it comes to pretty much anything else in life, Look for other saviors. Yeah. And so I can trust that God will save me, that Jesus can save me from, from hell, but he can't save my marriage. No, no, I gotta have to find another savior somewhere else. Probably me. I'll probably have to be my own savior for my Oh, oh, Jesus can save me from sin, that's no problem. But I'll have to find some other savior to take care of all my needs in this life, because well, it'll probably be me. I'll be my own savior for those things, because I, I can handle it. Or won't, or whatever we think. Now, we never say that stuff, but that's how we act. That's how we live. How sad. Can we not trust him to care for all of our needs? Is he not the same one who cared for Noah in the midst of the flood and protected him from start to finish? Do we really think that the one who loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us isn't there meeting our needs each and every day? Brothers and sisters, we've turned from the Savior to so many lesser saviors in so many different areas of life. And if this is where you're at this morning, then let me just simply stand here as a reminder. You know this. You know it in your heart. But let me stand here as a reminder to you that it wasn't the boat that kept Noah safe. It's not your job. Not your bank account, not your 401k, 
It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your house. It's not your friends. It's not your physical fitness. It's not your diet. It's not anything else. The fears you have for the future will never be allayed by anything you can do on this earth. And you will never find safety, security, or salvation in any of those things. They are altogether lesser saviors. Our hope, our trust, our security, our safety, our salvation is bound up in the character, goodness, and power of God alone. So I urge you this morning to place all of your hope in any trial you have in your life right now. Father, forgive us. We love you. We say we love you. We sing songs to you and praise and we mean them. And yet we are so prone to wander, to search for a lesser salvation and lesser things. Not remembering that you are the great God who, who takes care of the sparrows, who clothes the lilies of the field. You cared for Noah in the midst of the greatest single catastrophe this world has ever seen. In the midst of your judgment, you showed him grace. There wasn't a way that he capsized that boat because you were with him. And Lord, for many of us, we have gone through trials, troubles. We've had struggles, we've had hardships, and in the midst of those things, we are so tempted, we're so prone to want to find safety and security, salvation in lesser things, forgetting that you love us. That the same gospel that proclaims that your love is so great that you sent your only begotten Son to die for our sins says that you are our Father. You're our Father. You're not just our God. We're your sons and daughters. And you love us. And you will care for everything we need. In our selfishness and greed, sometimes we feel that that's not sufficient. We want our wants as well. You promise to meet our needs. And you always do. Even when we don't realize it. We come this morning with bodies and seek your forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for not remembering are. Not remembering that our, our safety, our security, our salvation in life is tied up in you, not in the things we can see can be taken in a moment. You have So Lord, I pray that you will help us as people, as your people, as your children, to be reminded each and every day what is really in our hands and that's nothing. We come to you empty-handed, and we place all of our hope for any and every area of life into your hands. You are the one who can uphold us in the midst of those things. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your power. I thank you for your love, for your goodness to us. You are a good and faithful Father who cares for us. Help us never to forget that. Help us to always remember to turn to you in the midst of anything that we go through. We love you.